morning, Bayless Baptist Church. What a gift to be with you guys today. You have no idea how much of a privilege it is for me to worship with you guys. Uh, you likely don't know me. Uh, my name, as was already said, is Sam Tanell. I'm the pastor of Red Tree Church out in Baldwin, Missouri. Uh, but I know about you guys, and I hope uh, you know that you're not in this alone, that you have brothers and sisters who love you guys, who are praying for you regularly, um, who are in this with you. Replanting a church is a big task, and I know that it's exhausting, and I know that um, you guys are feeling the weight of that. Uh, apparently, you have a, a big meeting coming up and those sorts of things, and I I, I get that that stuff, that stuff is draining. So I hope you know that we love you at Red Tree, that I love you guys, that we're praying for you, that you have been, been blessed with an excellent pastor and pastor family, and you guys take care, good care of them, or I will come back. Uh, and that will be the punishment, is me coming back and preaching again. So <laughs> um, I've been tasked today to spend a few minutes talking about some of the biblical teaching on the life of prayer. And so I am excited to do that. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 today. It's going to take me a hot minute to get there, but, but you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 18. Uh, I'm going to be using the opening line of the Lord's Prayer as kind of, kind of a, a biblical frame to talk about an aspect of prayer that I think will be beneficial for us today. And that's this. If, if you spent any time around church world, you've probably heard the Lord's Prayer. It's one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. It's a, a model prayer that Jesus gave in his Sermon on the Mount and in his Sermon on the Plain. And he opens the prayer by saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Ooh, I just I dated myself with which translation I used just there. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. There we go. That's closer to our ESV, right? Some of you who grew up uh, in Awana and RAs like me, you're getting your arts in there when you quote things like the Lord's Prayer. But, but the Lord's Prayer opens with this appeal to our Father in heaven, our Holy Father in heaven. And that's what I want to talk to us about today, is this simple truth. We have a good Father in heaven. A good Father in heaven who knows us, who knows what we need, and who delights, delights to care for his children. This is the absolute like bedrock of understanding the biblical teaching on prayer. That you and I have a father in heaven who knows us, who knows our needs, and who delights to care for his children. You know, I know, I know that, that for most of you guys, and if this isn't you, I, I apologize for this, but, but most of us, especially like you guys in the midst of a replant, there is this kind of understanding as a church family that, that we're in this mission together. That, that, that part of being in this, part of pursuing after Christ, is that we have been included in Christ's call to mission. To, to take the gospel with us wherever we go and proclaim the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Christ, to, to, to save from sin, to, to, to bring the dead to life, to draw those who are lost into the kingdom of God. We, we take that with us, that, 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 that participation 
with God in this amazing mission. And I, and I know that even as I say something like that, that, that most of you guys are going, yes, yes and amen. That is exactly who we are and, and what we are to be called to, what, what our lives is supposed to revolve around is the mission of God to seek and save the lost, to bring himself glory through, through building a kingdom, right? But as we say that, we also have to acknowledge that we live in a really unique time in our culture to say that our lives are all about the proclamation and carrying of the message with us. I mean, what does it mean to carry the message of the gospel with you when you're not going anywhere? What does it mean to be participants, to be full participants, to, to define your life? by passionate involvement in the mission of God in the age of shelter-at-home orders and social distancing and all these sorts of things. And I know that even as I say that, some of you are like, well, I mean, yeah, we've, we've talked about that. We've thought about that. We do this, we do that, we do this. And that's, you know, yeah, Zoom calls and ports drop-offs and hangouts with friends who you've put in your social bubble and, and all those different things. Those are beautiful and good, but, but I really think, I really think taking just a few minutes to draw back to the biblical teaching on prayer, I think will remind us that we are, we are not only able, but we are commanded. We, 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 we are encouraged to participate in the mission at all times, regardless of where we're going or how many people we're seeing. As I was praying over you guys this morning, I was drawn back to this text in Matthew 9. This is not our main text for today, but I want to read this to you. It says, as Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, this is verse 37, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Speaking right into what we understand. The God, God is calling a people unto himself. The, the harvest is plentiful. It's, it's time. But there are few laborers. But then look how Jesus ends this out in verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of us have heard this text before, but it brought me back to the truth that I think we need at a time like this, at Bayless Baptist and at Red Tree. And that's this. Beloved of Jesus, prayer is the way forward for the church and for the kingdom. Period. Prayer is the way forward for God's church. No, no, no. I know, by the way, this is amongst the most stereotypical things a pastor can say to you, right? Like if you, if you meet with a pastor and he doesn't tell you to pray more and read your Bible more, have you, have you actually met with a pastor, right? Like, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure beyond even that stereotype that, that we're all humble enough to admit that we can grow in our prayer life, Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that no matter how healthy your prayer life may be right now, you can admit that you could grow in depth or in intimacy or in health in your 
prayer life personally. I mean, I, I would admit to you guys, just to be confessional, that I, I struggle in this area. I feel like I, I fluctuate be, between this, this almost, almost practical prayerlessness and then this sort of disciplined prayer that revolves around working my way through lists and keeping notes in my journal. And, and, and I just kind of swing back and forth. Not, not, not saying that I don't find like, life and joy and intimacy and prayer with, and communication with Christ, but, but admitting that this, this, is, this is an aspect of the spiritual life that doesn't come naturally for me. And I can easily, readily admit, yeah, I've got room to grow. I've got room to grow in prayer. Because I think, I think it's important, regardless of how stereotypical it may be for a pastor to tell you, you should pray, <laughs> to stop and consider the truth that you should pray. Because we should. Because, because prayer is the way forward for the church. Because, because healthy and consistent prayer, it, it may be hard, but it is so necessary. It is so necessary. And by the way, I know as I say this, there are some of you in this space who are spiritually gifted in prayer. This is my wife, if, if by some chance she's watching the live stream right now. There are some of you who are spiritually gifted in prayer and you're sitting here going, Wait, prayer, prayer's hard for you? Because I feel like I just pray all the time. Listen, you're amazing, and we all get it. That's fine. The rest of us need to talk about this for a minute, okay? All right, good. <laughs> this, we, we, have this, we have this amazing invitation where Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Ask the Lord. Now, how, how amazing is that? Think about this scene. Jesus is literally walking around with his followers, right? Doing all this ministry. And he makes this comment, look how ripe the world is for the gospel. Man, if only there were more people going. You guys should pray that God would send more people. That's wild. Jesus doesn't say, hey, get off your tuchuses and get out there. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus tells his apostles, standing, staring ministry opportunities in the face, to begin with prayer. Because prayer is the way forward. Prayer is the bedrock of the movement of the church. Prayer is the way. We get to ask the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. I love this because it reminds us of this beautiful truth that God is the one who is doing the work. God is the one who is making the harvest. God is the one who is saving souls. We get to ask him to continue the work, to do more, to save more. It brings this image to mind for me. Um, my dad is a, was an auto technician and owned his own auto repair shop for years and years. And so I grew up hanging out with my dad and handing him wrenches and, and doing all that stuff. It reminds me of that kind of stereotypical scene of a little kid helping his dad work. You know what I'm talking about? Where the little kid's not actually helping his dad work. You, you know what I'm saying? Like the kid might be there, they might have wrenches in their hand, but really they're just playing while the dad works. But afterward, they go inside and tell mom I helped dad work. You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's what we are invited into. 
Our God is the one who is going and making the harvest and building his kingdom and drawing the dead to life. And we get invited like, like little kids to come and play with the wrenches while he does the work. So we pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send more laborers. There's a Ugandan theologian named Emmanuel Kantantogole who said it like this. The first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy. It is prayer. We are called to a space where the right response of the church can only be a desperate cry directed to God. Come on. Which brings us to today. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Our good Father who knows us and knows what we need. And delights to meet the needs of his children. We could spend hours talking about the weightiness behind the biblical image of God the Father. But let me summarize it like this. God's love and relationship to us is analogous to the perfect idealization of fatherhood. God is a good father who cares for, leads, and delights in his children. Now I know as I say that, that some of you don't have that kind of relationship with your father. In fact, I would say that those of us with the best possible relationships with our dads still have fallible, sinful dads who despite their efforts hurt and wrong and sin us and sin against us. This is the nature of life in a broken and fallen world, right? We're not going to get a perfect image, but, but the perfect idealization of fatherhood is analogous to our relationship with God, which finally, I know it took me a minute, brings us to our text in Luke. We're going to read a parable from Jesus about prayer to our good father. It was designed to help us cut through the broken nature of our relationship to the fatherhood and see the reality of our good father. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and let's read this strange parable. In the first verse, the 18th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, we read this. And he told them, to a parable, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And this, beloved of Jesus, is the word of the Lord. What a weird parable, right? I love this one. Here, here, here we have God giving a parable about the ways we relate to him in prayer, right? And the analogy he gives us about our, our prayer life, our connection to God, is of a terrible person abusing their position and authority for personal gain and a marginalized person desperate for help. It's a very strange story to hand us 
to teach us about that. It's, it's unique among Jesus' parables in that this is one of the few parables where we get the meaning of the parable in the actual telling. Jesus is usually very, very coy when it comes to the meaning of his parables. He likes us to, to kind of sit and chew on them and see how the, the meaning comes out over time and over consideration and over conversation. But, but here, he gives us the meaning before he even tells us the story. So here's what I'd like to do. The story of this parable is simple. There's a couple cultural textual issues that I can point out to kind of help maybe clarify the story for us. Hopefully that'll give us a clear understanding. But as the meaning of the text becomes clear to us this morning, I'd like to just end our time by jumping back to one of Jesus's most simple teachings on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll end our time with some reflection and time of communion. Sound good? Doesn't matter if you say yes, that's, that's what we're doing. Just, just so we're clear. <laughs> the story here is relatively simple. We have a terrible judge who's only interested in self-gain. There's a widow in need of justice. She essentially bothers the judge asking for justice over and over and over and over and over until he relents and gives her justice just to stop the annoyance. And Jesus ends by saying, if this unjust judge will give justice because of bickering, how much more will God give justice to those who cry to him continually? It's a relatively simple story. Just a strange one. Strange for God to compare himself to an unjust judge. Now, a couple things we need to understand. First, this parable that that we're reading is out of the Gospel of Luke. Now, parables were one of Jesus' favorite teaching tools. Essentially, he would use these word, like vivid stories to illustrate abstract and, and hard-to-understand truths about the kingdom. Parables are, 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 parables are usually about Jesus, first and foremost, although our text today is kind of an exception to that, that general rule. Our parables very specifically about how people are to relate to God in prayer. Jesus told us that up front. And although this has, by the way, interesting implications for uh, how we understand Jesus' own relationship to the Father and prayer and all those things, I'm just not going to spend time talking about that today. If you're curious about that and you want to hear more about the intricacies of the connection between the different members of the Trinity, uh, I would refer you to Pastor Evan Skelton. He'd love to uh, talk to you all about that. But I'm going to skip over that today. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, just this idea uh, of prayer, how this parable teaches uh, about our relationship to God the Father in prayer. Now, it's important to note, by the way, that this isn't just a parable. This is a parable in Luke. Uh, Luke is the gospel that gives the most energy to contextualizing the gospel message to, to people who are marginalized and hurting, who are, who are kind of ignored by society as a whole. This will play into our understanding of the text a little bit as we'll see some kind of Luke's thematic writing come out. Social power dynamics are often a big deal in Luke, and we see that in this story Uh, It's really on full display. The setup here is that there's this unrighteous judge. Now, really quick, that was common enough in Jesus' day. Common enough, by the way, that the Jewish people had set up essentially their own legal or or court system that operated within the temple and within the synagogues that allowed them to kind of take care of most 
of their social or legal issues. The reason was because they wanted to avoid the secular Roman court. There were secular Roman appointed judges for every person in the kingdom, including widows and things like that, but the Jewish people, as much as they could, avoided this secular system because it was, well, first off, incredibly corrupt, but second off, because they just wanted to save face. They wanted to take care of things in-house. So we have this unrighteous judge, and we're introduced to a widow who comes to him for justice. Now, this is important because what this essentially tells us out of the bat or out of the gate is that this woman, for whatever reason, couldn't find justice in her internal cultural court system, which, by the way, also makes sense. She's a widow. And in Jewish culture in this day, widows were essentially the most legally vulnerable people. If most of a woman's identity and social standing were caught up in her marriage. And so if a woman was widowed, especially later in life, it, it put a lot of things into really big trouble for her socially, but also legally. See, she wouldn't be allowed to sign for property or sign for her own finances. A male in her family would have to do so. And so it was actually totally legal in that day for an uncle, a cousin, a nephew, a son to just seize her property and take it from her. And she had no real legal recourse. This is a very, very vulnerable place to be if you're an older woman who's found herself widowed and in possession of property. So the idea that a widow would be seeking justice was a relatively common idea. And in the fact that she's seeking justice from this unjust secular judge, it shows us really how, how desperate the situation is. You see, she has been wronged in some way. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't really matter why, because she could be wronged in so many ways, but she can't get a hearing in the Jewish courts. Maybe her adversary was well-known. Maybe her adversary was well-resourced. Maybe the, the, the amount of injustice was so small she couldn't get on the docket. Maybe what was done to her was actually legal because she was a widow. Regardless, she couldn't get on the docket. So for whatever reason, she ends up going to this secular judge. He is required to hear her case any and all cases. He doesn't care about the widow. He doesn't care about the justice, but he is a Roman-appointed judge, and he must hear the case. We're told that this judge doesn't fear God and doesn't care about justice. These are two terrible character qualities for a judge, right? But this is our guy. This dude is collecting a government paycheck and probably a fat stack of bribes. He doesn't care about this woman. He doesn't care about her injustice. Now, it's important for us to hear this part. This is all just kind of set up. This is all stuff that would be mostly understood to the hearers as soon as they heard it. And this would be an incredibly common scenario. This would not be a strange or, or outside the realm of understanding or imagination for any of Jesus' hearers. She has run out of options. She's been unjustly beat down by a system that, let's be honest, doesn't have her in mind. She has no other options. So she is dependent on this judge. She expects justice. So her dependence turns into persistence. She comes back over and over and over demanding the judge give her justice. 
And eventually the judge is so beat down by her persistence that he gives in and gives her justice. Look at his reasoning. Though I neither fear man nor respect, nor, nor, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I think this is one of the most strange and humorous texts in all of the Gospels. This woman basically annoys the judge into getting her justice, and it works. That's such a wild story. And Jesus tells that part and then just goes, and that's it. That's the whole story. She annoyed the judge. He gave her justice. And he tags his teaching onto the end. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. You see this? Jesus takes this example of a terrible situation that still results in justice, and he points back to God, because God is good. So how much more will he bring about justice? There are three truths from the story that I think we need to kind of wrap our heads and our hearts around if we're going to hear what Jesus has for, for us in this text. The first is the nature of the judge. The judge in this story was selfish and sinful, but our father's not like this. And we have a good father, a good father who knows us and knows our needs, who delights to meet our needs, who desires what is best for us. I know I already said this, Some of us have bad relationships with our earthly fathers, and we weren't taught this lesson that a father is good and that he delights to meet your needs. But let me assure you, church, alongside Jesus, that that even unjust judges will give justice when they are heckled enough. But your father is good, he doesn't have to be heckled, he's good. He's not like earthly fathers who have sin and brokenness. He is good. He has good for you. has good for us, good for his kingdom. And he delights to hear from you, to provide for you. He will not delay. He is speedy in giving justice. Come on. The second thing, so the first thing, the character of the judge This judge is terrible, but our father is good. Second thing, the actions of the widow. Look how she approaches the judge. She is, she's dependent, she's persistent, she's expectant. She has no other options. She she needs this judge to try her case. She's persistent. She She doesn't give up. She comes back day after day demanding justice, and she is expectant. I think this part is important for us. She's not seeking personal gain. She's seeking justice, and she expects to have it, which leads us to the third truth, which I think is important here. This widow is seeking justice, 
I don't know if you caught this, but the, the text repeats this idea of justice over and over. It wants you to think about justice in terms, in connection to thinking about our prayers to God. Justice is a big deal in the Bible and especially in Luke. And I'm not going to go super deep into this, but biblically speaking, just for a simple definition, seeking justice is the idea of seeking for wrongs to be made right. Ultimately, this is understood biblically in the overarching story of the gospel. God is making right what sin has broken. Ultimate justice is God's ultimate restoration of all things at Christ's return, at the inauguration of eternity. This is connected to the larger truth of this text and, and this teaching from Jesus. This, this story is given right in the middle of Jesus' final march towards Jerusalem. He's been teaching his followers about his kingdom and about his messiahship and, and what it will be like. And, and, and Jesus is breaking everyone's expectations of what God's kingdom will be like. See, in chapter 17, Jesus gives us this truth about the kingdom of God, that his church is going to be a part of something really important. He says the kingdom of God is, is here and now, but it's also yet to come. In other words, the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. You know, we get the Holy Spirit here and now. We get forgiveness of sins here and now. We get community and family here and now. But we also live in a broken, sinful world where injustice happens, where we are wronged, where Satan fights against us as individuals and against the church, where society is at best indifferent and at worst hostile toward the kingdom, where we battle sin within our own hearts. We long for the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom. Even though we've experienced salvation here and now, we long for the ultimate justice when Jesus will return. To, to seek after Christ, to follow after him, to be about the work of the kingdom is to seek ultimate justice. And this is the justice Jesus is pointing us to when he gives this parable. So remember these three things. We know who the judge actually is. We know how the widow engages him. And we know what the widow is actually speaking. Seeking. So let me wrap this around and kind of land this, talking about how we engage God in prayer. Let's start with how the widow prays. Persistent, dependent, expectant. Think about how this sort of posture affects our understanding of prayer. See, Jesus uses this language of crying out day and night to describe the kind of persistence in prayer, Jesus is basically challenging us to try and annoy God with our prayers. Try it. Try and, and drive him nuts with your prayers. You can't do it. You can't. He longs to hear from you. He longs to hear the desires of your heart over and over and over and over. I had a really good friend growing up. We grew up in church Sunday school together out in First Baptist Church of O'Fallon, Missouri. And we were in Sunday school together from childhood all the way up through high school. And he had a father who, who isn't a believer. And every single Sunday, every single Sunday, literally, from as early as I can remember, my buddy would pray that God would save his dad. Pray that God would save his dad. And our whole class, and go through different years and different teachers. I mean, years and years and years and years. Years and years. And we graduated high school, and we kind of drifted apart, and it still hadn't happened. 
It was, it was decades later when God worked in that man's heart to bring him from death to life, to bring him to salvation. But God, I tell you, God delighted to hear those prayers for years. Persistence, try and annoy God with your prayers. But it's not just persistence, it's also dependence. The widow could not have justice without the judge, and we cannot have the kingdom without God. He must intervene. The widow was dependent on the judge for justice, and we are dependent on God to bring about his kingdom. He must intervene because nothing worth happening in our lives, in our church, or in the larger work of the kingdom will happen without the movement of God. We are completely dependent on him to work out his gospel plan. Whether that is saving us or doing amazing things in our church or doing things in our community or doing things in this world, we need him. So we come to him dependently over and over and over and we come to him expectantly. Expectantly. We don't just need him to do it, and we don't just ask him to do it over and over, but we can expect. Because God has promised that Jesus will return and he will restore all things. Guys, God's promise is as good as accomplished. When God promises something, he keeps it and it happens. And he has promised us that Christ will return and restore all things and that justice will happen and that the kingdom will win and that Satan will lose. That we will have life eternal with him. He's made these promises. And so we can come to him with our true hearts over and over and over knowing that we're dependent on him to accomplish it and expecting him to actually accomplish the work of his kingdom. We can do those things with one caveat. And this is so important in our day and age. See, the widow didn't just pray with consistency. She didn't just pray with dependency. And she didn't just pray with expectancy. She prayed for justice. See, what we pray for is just as important as how we pray. Many of us are so prayerless in our day-to-day lives that we think the issue is our lack of effort. If only we prayed more, if only we prayed better, then we would see God move and see him solve our problems. And guys, well, well, lack of effort can be an issue. You should pray more. We can all admit that. We can and should pray more often. The real issue is how we see God. It's in what we're asking him for. And we live in a day where the prosperity gospel has perverted the true biblical gospel all over the world. It's so easy to think that if we learn the right methods and disciplines of prayer, we can make God our personal genie or vending machine or blessing, uh, vending machine giving out blessing, comfort, happiness, stuff, relationships. But this is not the case. The widow was not seeking out stuff or comfort or happiness. She was seeking justice. She was seeking for wrongs to be made right. She was seeking the same thing we're seeking. That the kingdom might come. That God might restore all things. It's a good question to ask 
how we pray, but it's only one of the questions. We have to ask, what are we actually praying for? Listen, you can bring your desires to God no matter how tiny or petty they are, I promise you, because he longs to hear from you. But ultimately, ultimately, we need to be seeking God for his ultimate justice for the restoration of all things, for the return of Jesus, for the salvation of lost souls, for the righting of the wrong that is the curse. This is the prayer that God hears, that God answers quickly. God will bring about his justice. Christ will return and all things will be restored. The promise of God is as good as accomplished. So I ask, beloved of Jesus, how often Do we pray to God to bring about the kingdom here and now? To bring about his real justice against sin? To return and establish his kingdom on earth? Jesus tells us to pray and not lose heart. But to cry out for this reality day and night. To seek God, asking him to make all things new to save the lost, to advance his kingdom, to crush the curse, coming to him day and night, not losing heart. God, please restore all things in my life and in my neighborhood and in my church and in our city and in our world. God, please advance your kingdom here and now. God, do this work day and night, not growing weary, not losing heart. This is the prayer. This is the prayer that God longs to hear that connects us to his will. The prayer that he will not delay to meet, but will speedily engage. No matter how often or how you pray or what you pray for, ultimately, it all comes back, and this is how we'll land this thing, to who you're praying to. See, God longs to hear that prayer, and God loves to answer that prayer speedily, and God desires for us to pray that day and night, not losing hope, because when it comes down to it, God is our good Father, and he knows us, and he knows what we need. He knows that we need salvation from sin, and restoration from the curse, and life from death, and he delights to give those things. I'm gonna end us with this teaching from Jesus. In Matthew 6, when speaking about prayer, Jesus said this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them. Hear this, church, beloved of Jesus. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So we can come to him day and night, crying out for God to restore all things, seeking justice, seeking Christ, seeking the kingdom over and over and over and over, expectant and dependent and persistent, not losing heart. We can do that because when it comes down to it, we're asking our dad to take care of us. And he loves to do just 
that. So I'm going to ask you guys to take a few minutes to pray, and here's what we're going to do. I guess Chris comes up at this point. I haven't done this with you guys before. I'm going to ask us to take a few minutes and reflect. Be with Christ in prayer. In just a few moments, I'm going to lead us in the taking of communion. But before we get to that, I want us to do, do, I want to ask you to do what you need to do in this space to be alone with Christ for a minute. If you can do that sitting in your chair, that's fine. If you need to get up and get on your knees somewhere, if you need to grab one of the elders and ask them to pray with you and help you articulate things to Christ, you can do that. But I want to, I want to ask you guys to take a minute, in whatever way you need to, to be with Christ and reflect on this truth. You have a good father. You have a good father who knows you and sees you, who longs to hear from you, who loves to provide for you, who knows what you really need. And what you really need is Christ, the restoration of all things. So here's, 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 here's what I'm going to ask you to do as you reflect on that. And this is going to sound weird maybe, but I'm just going to do it. I want you to ask Jesus to give you sober eyes on your prayer life. Ask him to give you reflection on how you engage him, what you ask for, how you ask for it, how you speak to him, how persistent or expectant or dependent you are. Just ask him. Sit in the silence, sit with the spirit, see what he says to you. We'll take a few minutes, be in this, and then I'll take us through communion.